0: Will you join me in a prayer for illumination? Holy and living God, we give thanks for these ancient words and ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that they would come alive and lead us in the days to come. Thank you for the gift of these words. and May the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. Our scripture passage for this morning is is a short passage from the first chapter of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth itself is just four chapters long and it's an exciting read, a quick read, and I recommend this afternoon, find about 10 minutes. You can read through the whole thing. It's a story that's very powerful and it talks to us about the ways that God brings people into our lives at crucial moments, often the people we least expect. The story begins with Ruth's in-laws, the Israelites, Elimelech and Naomi, moving from Bethlehem to Moab because of a severe famine in Israel. Now, Moab is an avowed enemy of Israel, and there are even prohibitions in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy against marrying anyone from Moab. So it's surprising, to say the least, that their sons take Moabite wives, Orpah and our title character, Ruth. Tragically, at the outset of this story, all three of those men die, widowing Naomi and her daughters-in-law, When Naomi decides to return to her hometown of Bethlehem in Israel, she tells the younger women to stay with their people in Moab and find new husbands, the most sensible course in a society where women were dependent on men for support and to provide for them. She makes a compelling argument, and Orpah goes back to her family, but Ruth makes a different choice. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to the church. So Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I shall be buried. So help me, God, not even death itself is going to come between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jim loved animals. He'd had cats and dogs as pets, but at this point in his life, what he was really looking forward to, what he was saving up for, was a baby African gray parrot. You see, Amy talked about fish last week, so I have to talk about birds. That type of bird is very expensive and very smart. They can speak, and they even develop personalities of their own. They might be one of the only animals that truly understands sarcasm and uses it. Jim also had some mental health issues that he had to deal with. Every once in a while, he would just lose control. He got so angry, he'd punch dents in cars, yell at random people on the street, smash windows, do all kinds of dangerous things. Jim knew he was being destructive. And so he tried to calm himself down when he felt these moods coming on. He'd talk to himself saying, let it go, or calm down, Jim. And sometimes those little talks worked. But one time his mood was so bad that he flew into a rage in public. He was arrested and put on probation. He knew that another slip-up like that could land him in jail for good. He was getting more and more isolated, getting closer and closer to the end of his rope. Jim had told just about everyone he knew that he was trying to get an African gray parrot, and one day a friend showed him an ad for one that was being sold at a very low price. Jim quickly discovered why she was so cheap. She was a mess. She'd been pulling out her own feathers, which is something these birds do when they're extremely stressed out. The person who owned her hadn't been taking good care of her. Jim almost decided to leave her there. He was at the end of his rope. Did he really want a bird that was at the end of hers? But as he watched the poor creature, Jim decided he couldn't just leave her there. Her name was Sadie. Jim brought Sadie home, started feeding her regularly, talking to her, and within three days, she started bowing her head to him, which meant that she was starting to warm up to him, and they were bonding. At first, the only thing she would say was, want a beer? And that might give you a sense of her former living conditions. But soon enough, she started learning things from Jim. She would say hello, and her name She could imitate Jim's laugh. She even started saying, Coochie, Coochie, Coo. And something else interesting happened. Whenever Jim felt one of his moods coming on, he would tell himself, Calm down, Jim. And after a while, Sadie started repeating him, Calm down, Jim. Jim soon realized it was actually easier to relax when he had someone else encouraging him to take it easy or reassuring him that it would be okay, or just saying, I love you. Jim bought Sadie a cage that he could wear like a backpack, and he got a service animal permit for her because she really did help calm him down and keep him from doing the things that were so destructive. One day, Jim felt himself starting to get upset, and before he could say anything, he heard Sadie say, "'Calm down, Jim!' He didn't know how, but this African gray parrot had come to know him so well that she could sense when he was getting upset. An expert on parrot behavior who was interviewed for the podcast where I heard this story said she wasn't surprised by this development. In the wild, the parrots of the flock look out for each other and protect each other from danger." They learned to read each other's signs. The scientists said that Jim and Sadie were in a flock of two, and that Sadie knew she needed to take care of her flockmate just as he had taken care of her. Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law for 10 years, but I don't know if they truly became a family until the tragic deaths of the men they loved. At that time, women were dependent on men to provide for them, so the best thing for Ruth to do, the most sensible thing, would be to leave Naomi and remarry, which is what her sister-in-law Orpah chooses to do. But Ruth, who remember is a Moabite, is one of the foreign groups despised by Naomi's people, and she's someone who is prevented by law from marrying into a Jewish family. She just can't do it. Don't force me to leave you, she says, when Naomi tells her to go back home and start over. Then she makes one of the most astounding promises of loyalty in the whole Bible, one that's often used in wedding ceremonies. Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die, and that's where I'll be buried. In other words, Ruth says, I'm your family now. And remember, these are two people from enemy nations. Ruth is often lifted up as a a great model of biblical womanhood, and she is but a lot of times that gets boiled down to this concept that she was just a really, really nice young woman. We have to understand the scope of the risk that Ruth is taking. We have to understand how brave, how courageous an act this is. She has no reason to think that she'll be accepted when they get to Israel. It's likely that things will be hard for her. She may be shunned and turned away. She has no logical reason to go, except that she knows things will be even harder for Naomi, who is older, unable to work. There's the family you're born into, and there's the family you choose, and there's the family that chooses you. In choosing Naomi to be her family, Ruth shows a quality that has a special name in the Bible, The Hebrew word is chesed, which means loyalty, goodness, taking responsibility and caring for others. There isn't any one English word that covers all the meanings of chesed, which is one of the essential properties of God. In Psalm 31, the writer prays to God, saying, Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love or save me in your chesed. This steadfast love is something that God shows to each and every one of us, every day. Because we have received this love from God, we're called to share chesed with everyone we encounter, whether they're our biological family members or not, whether they're our enemies or not. Because in the end, we are all part of, Of the human family. We're all part of the family of God. Jesus wants to bring everyone into that family. He called disciples together who were fishermen, religious zealots, accountants, even a doctor. They spent three years eating together, traveling together, witnessing miracles together, and yes, fighting together. If they were a family, they were surely a dysfunctional one. And perhaps they have every reason to be. I get the feeling that left to their own devices, not many of these guys would choose to hang out with each other. Would a pediatrician choose to spend time with a radical revolutionary? Would a fisherman choose to have dinner at a tax collector's house? It doesn't sound likely. And yet, these are the people Jesus chooses to bring together. These are the people he chooses to continue his ministry after his death. These people who fought amongst each other and ultimately deserted him, these are the ones that Jesus chooses to make into a family, into his family. My first job as an ordained pastor was as the chaplain at United Methodist Family Services, an agency in Richmond that works with troubled teens and families in crisis. In my time at UMFS, my definition of the word family underwent radical changes. Andrea grew up with parents who struggled with addiction. When her stepfather died of a drug overdose, she was removed from the home by Family Services and placed with foster parents, who felt that what she really needed was strict discipline. That discipline included withholding food if she didn't do what they wanted and locking her in her room for days at a time. She was in that home for four months and subsequently was placed with three other families over the course of a year and a half. None of them were prepared for the challenge of providing care to a young girl with no experience of a loving family. During this time, Andrea developed an eating disorder as a way to cope with the trauma she had experienced. Now, the foster family she was with at the time, the Joneses, found out about this, and that's what brought her to UMFS. Counselors there had to work carefully and skillfully with Andrea to help break down the emotional barriers she had developed over a lifetime of being let down by the adults in her life, they had to show her that there were people in the world who would provide compassionate, non judgmental care, that rules would be consistent, that she was worthy of love. To her great surprise, the Joneses welcomed her back into their home after her stay at UMFS, and after another few months, Andrea decided that she wanted to be part of their family forever. She wanted to be adopted, and they agreed. I always thought there was something wrong with me, Andrea said. After a while, I had just lost too many people that I might have cared about. I'd been with too many parents who really weren't, and I wondered if it was too late for me to believe that anyone loved me. So I decided I wasn't going to let anybody like me not even myself. When I met the Joneses, I wasn't going to let them know for one second that I liked them or that I needed them. But they stayed. They held me in their arms and in their hearts. Even when I acted like I didn't like them at all, even when I messed up at school, even when I got so mad that I broke a window in their house, they held me, And then, one day, it wasn't their house anymore. It was our house. And for the first time in my life, I was home. Andrea didn't expect to end up with the Joneses. Naomi didn't expect to end up with Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Jim didn't expect an African gray parrot to help with his psychosis. And the disciples didn't expect to be paired up with weirdos and spend the rest of their lives preaching Jesus' message. But God is in the business of confounding our expectations. God loves creating unexpected families, and we are called to join in that effort. Families, all families, require hard work, whether they're biological or not, And as the church, we are called to be a model for the world of Jesus' message that we are all part of God's family. In a culture of division and partisanship, churches can be some of the last places where people from all different walks of life come together, united by our faith in Jesus Christ. But being here in worship together isn't enough. We need to go out into the world and defy the cultural messages of us versus them, insiders versus outsiders. Just like Andrea and the Joneses, like Jim and Sadie, like Ruth and Naomi and the disciples, we need to look out for each other. We need to look for the people who want to be part of the flock. We need to see the dignity in all people, not just the ones who look or sound or worship like us. We need to go outside of our comfort zones, outside the artificial boundaries we set up to separate us, us and them, outside the areas that feel safe. And there we will find strangers who become friends, enemies who truly deserve our chesed, outcasts who can teach us what it truly means to belong. The work of reconciliation, of building bridges, is only possible through the love of God, the love that claims us as part of the family. We love because God first loved us. God is the one who says to us, don't ask me to leave you or abandon you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. And not even death can take you away from me. Friends, not even death can take us away. Alleluia. Amen.